So as we uh, get started and, and as we're working through this passage this morning, uh, we are in Galatians, as you've already we've read from. But the book of Galatians, primarily, as we would talk about it, is it's about defending the gospel. Paul is defending it against those who are attacking, uh, really attacking the gospel. And so what he's going to do is there's these these Judaizers is what they're often called. There are people who are leading the church to kind of say Christ plus something uh, to be able to stand before God and to continue standing before God, you might say. And we might say, just kind of stop real quick and say, what is the gospel? If you're saying, what's this gospel that we're defending? In a very, uh, very simple way, I would say it's the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth and died on the cross for us to save us from our sins. If we repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone to save us, we will be saved. It's, it's that gospel message. It's good news. We cannot save ourselves. Christ came to save us. So anyway, Paul's dealing with these teachers and these false teachers. And what he's going to deal with, uh, you know, like through this book, one of the things just recently was he says that um, basically um, that, that the way that everybody has ever, anybody that's ever been saved has been saved is the same way that Abraham was saved, and it's by faith. God made a promise to him, and he trusted in that promise, and he was saved. He was not rescued by his own merit, but what Christ had, I mean, what God had promised to him in the covenant that he gave to him. So I think it's important as we start there just to think about that. Last week, as we were looking at some of the things going on, and recently, the struggle becomes what, you know, the, the Jews were looking at the Abrahamic covenant, remember, and the Mosaic covenant, and they were saying, well, to us, it looks like those are kind of bridged together, and the Jews kind of thought, well, what we have to do is we have to obey these things. But God says, no, the promise stands, and the promise was something that God said, I'm going to bring this to pass, and Abraham had to believe, and that is how you enter into the family uh, that God has for us. So I, I want you to just look at a couple of things this morning as we're looking at this text. One, just kind of scanning this in 326 through 47. Paul will declare that the Gentile people, that means everybody that's not a Jew, because he'll speak of like Jew and Greek, but I mean everybody that's not a Jew, that they are sons of God. He will also um, he will speak about this as, as he'll say, look, that the past days of having a babysitter are gone. We have entered into this salvation history, a time in salvation history, where you enter into full sonship. We have all the rights and privileges of being a son. And he will deal that, and we'll kind of talk about what that means. Now, what the reality is, is you and I live between the already and the not yet, sometimes is what it's called of the kingdom. And what that means is that we, that we say we, we have all these privileges and rights as the children of God, but we are awaiting the fullness of that. So some people that you would hear talk about these things, they would say, because we have those, then right now you should experience all the blessings and all the promises. And the reality is we experience it in part, but we're awaiting the fullness of that in the future. And so that is really, really important, especially when you say uh, Jesus promised uh, one day that we will enter into to heaven, this beautiful city, there will be more, no more death and disease and disorder. He promises that, but we're waiting for that to come to its fullness. So I think it's important to note that. And so as you kind of move through, it's, it, we'll talk about this amazing privilege, and what we'll say is, it doesn't matter where you come from, where you stand socially, we, all those things do not matter. You get to enter in because of who Jesus is and what He's done. He came to redeem us from the curse of the law, from, the, from imprisonment really, and to place us in a palace, and that's kind of how it's presented. And He does so, it's accomplished by the work of the Spirit 
in our lives. And so it's just important to grasp that as we move ahead. So chapter 3, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So I just want you to look back to verses 23 through 25 real quick. It says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now then verse 26 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So this time period has changed in salvation history. We are now entered into a time where, and really in salvation history, it's presented as a baby growing up into adulthood. You've come into that. The fullness of that has been experienced now in Christ Jesus. We get that by faith. Now why does Paul use, we are all sons of God? That's kind of an interesting thing. Why would he, why would he say sons of God? Why wouldn't he say, we're all a part of the family of God? Or why would he not say, we're all sons and daughters? Of God, it is, that's an important question. But understand, in this time period, a son was the heir. Like without a son, there was no heir. Like the the family would have to scrounge around and figure out who they're going to give the land to, and the farm to, and the wealth to. The, the son was extremely important, especially the firstborn son. He had the highest place of prominence in that time. In many cultures throughout the world, there would be a horror if you didn't have a son. I mean, people would be horrified. The king would be looking for a way to have a son. Now, we would say, now asking the question then, so we would say that, that believers, man, woman, boy, girl, whoever trusts in Christ, they are sons of God. They have that place of prominence with God. They are blessed by God. Now, what makes us qualified to be sons of God? What does it say there? Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son. He is the Son, the true Son, the perfect Son, the obedient Son. And so we, by virtue of relationship with Him, get the benefits that He has as Son and through our union with Him. Um, I think it's important we are united to Jesus. In Christ means we have personally get the benefits because of our union with Him. We get the benefits of being a son. The Scripture speaks of this as in just kind of thinking through. We grow up. This means that we have access to God through Him. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Him. We have an inheritance that will not fade away in Jesus. We are forever intimately united to Him. We have access to God. We have the Spirit's presence now. All of those things come through faith in Christ. What He has done, what He's accomplished. Verse 27, For as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, baptism is a picture. And, and some people, like different people have different views of this, but baptism is, is a picture of what has happened to you on the inside. The, 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 especially like the old, I mean, most people would argue, uh, many scholars would, I might say most people, many scholars would say baptism by immersion was the practice throughout the early church and immersion is this picture of you going down into the water and then coming back up. It's a, it's a picture of what is taking place. The Scripture kind of presents it in, it's almost like you are going down into the waters of judgment and you are coming back up into a new life. You're plunged down. And, it's, and it also has this imagery of you're leaving the past behind. All the sin into a new world, into a new life in Christ. All of that is kind of visible representation of that. So I just think it's important because of our union with Christ, remember, we get the benefits of His life, death, burial, resurrection, 
all of those things that we get to see and experience because of that. Paul speaks of this actually being clothed here. The Scripture kind of in different places says we are clothed with a new self. We are clothed in a new way. We were used to wear the clothes of Adam back in the garden when he fell. We were born as a child of Adam. Now we're clothed in Christ. We get a new clothes, a righteousness that we did not possess. So it's just important, I think, to, to see that. Now, the reason that I think even this, some people say, well, this baptism is a spirit's baptism. It's not about talking about water baptism. It may be talking both in both ways there, like seeing both of them. That, that, that what the visual of the, the physical baptism that takes place is, is, is showing a spiritual reality. It's not that baptism in any way saves us or gives us standing before God, water baptism, but it does show in a very vivid way what has happened to us on the inside, that we are immersed into Christ, we're incorporated into Christ. So I just think it's important to see there, and, and I think it's important to kind of think through that. I was um, talking about our union, our immersion in Christ, our un- being united to Him. Uh, there's this guy a long time ago, and some people say, oh, that's kind of a cheesy deal, but it really kind of helped me think about it. Um, he was telling an illustration about his wife, like uh, baking biscuits, I think is what he was saying. And they would, he said that basically, you know, when he goes in to watch her, you know, bake biscuits, or he, she'll throw flour in and shortening and salt and all these different things and stir the ingredients up, throw them in the oven, bake them up till they're golden brown and the smells everywhere and so wonderful. But if she tried to go back and say, I'm going to pull those ingredients out, it's impossible. They've been united together. They've been merged together. In Christ, we've been merged into Him. It's a very valuable picture, I think, for us to see that we, we cannot be separated from Him. Our identity is, is, is wrapped up in Him. And what He has done has been given to us. So it's important for us to see that. Now, so Paul's doing this. He's kind of laying this out for us. And he's kind of said so far, he says, you're all sons of God through faith. Uh, it's not, you, there's not just Jews. It's not just circumcised Jews. All of us who are united to Christ by faith are full sons which is a very powerful picture. As you go to verse 28, it says, so Paul's going to say, kind of, it's almost be like somebody was, would be asking this question. Well, hold on just a second. Some people now, I mean, they can't really be like at the same place. Like you think about like the Jewish temple, if you read about that, like especially the latter temple, there were places for the Gentiles who had become come kind of Jewish people uh, by faith or whatever you would say by works. They had a place and the women had a place and the men. There were different places. So you kind of felt off and kind of set back if you were like a Gentile person who believed in God. But he says here, there is neither um, Jew nor Greek. So ethnicity is thrown out. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what background you have. It doesn't matter what country you're from what ethnic group you're from, that does not matter to God. It's not an issue. Class does not matter. Slave nor free. And, we, and, and I think it's important to understand that there are times in history, I watched a movie, um, the, the movie 42. I don't know if y'all have heard about that that came out. Jackie Robinson is um, he, it's like the first uh, African-American man that plays on a baseball team. And in, in that movie, you realize like when you're watching that, like the struggle that went on in that culture where people actually thought that a white person and a black person, they are d- distinct. They are different. They, they, they do not deserve to be in the same places. And the whole culture was built around that. But Paul's going to say that class does not matter. You think about like in, um, I always think about uh, in 
when you go to somewhere, I've never been there, but just hearing about people talking about like the strong caste system in India. When you hear about that, you realize like there are different people at different levels. They're not supposed to eat together. They're not supposed to talk to one another. There's just a strong distinction between the two. But Paul says this doesn't matter. In the Gospel, these things do not matter. Slavery, free. Now here's the question. So what did Paul say? Now this is kind of a big deal because some people ask the question like, why didn't Paul just say, do away with slavery? What Paul does here is he says basically, and some people say it's kind of like the little um, spark that lit the fire that did away with slavery, but he's saying wherever you live, wherever you live in, in the culture that you're in as a Christian, you are a son of God. But living in this present world, you might be a slave, you might be a free man, you might be this, you might be Jew, you might be Gentile, all those things. But understand this, in God's eyes, you are equal to those people, but you do live in this culture. And it's not about just trying to throw off the culture and all the sins of the culture, but he's just kind of laying it out in this way to say, listen, you live where you are, but understand you are a son of God. And in this life, you might live in this way, but in the life to come, it will not be that way any longer. The next thing you kind of see, and I just think it's important, is the gender issue. He says there's neither male nor female. And that, that's an important spot too because you say in that culture, men did everything. They were the leaders of everything. Women sometimes were almost seen like property and children were seen in a lower level. But in, in Christ, it's, not, it's just important to see this. In, in Him, like there's neither male nor female. Everybody has equal access to God. Now again... That does not mean that there are different. There aren't different roles. I mean, it's very clear in Scripture. Paul will say, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, be submitted to your husbands as to the Lord." What is that about? It's about a role distinction. Men were to lead their household, and women are to submit to their husbands. Those t- distinctions are made in Scripture. And so he's not saying that there's no distinction in role, but he's saying, look, we have equal access before God as in an equal inheritance, and we stand before Him understanding that. And that's a reality. But And we could also say, even in the Scriptures, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 speak of elders in the church as men. So that there's, there, there's, there are different roles between men and women in the church, in the home. All those things are certainly clearly there, but there's still this equality. We can say we all stand before the cross forgiven. We all stand before the cross as sons and daughters of God. But we would say, I guess you would say as sons of God in the context of this passage. So I just think it's important. Here's what this does. If you were to look at someone who is clothed with Christ, could you ever look down on them? If you were to look at someone and you say, God has clothed them in Christ, could you ever look down at them? Could you ever feel jealous of someone else if you rightly understood your place? Our pride in race, status, or gender is removed when we understand this reality. We are sinners adopted into God's family by sheer grace. So I think it's important to see. Now look at verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. In Christ we are. Heirs according to the promise. What was the promise given to Abraham? I'm going to read that to you just real quick. Chapter 12, verse 1-3. through Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What does it mean to be an heir in, in God's kingdom? To, to experience the promise of Abraham. It means that we have this future. We see, he, he's saying, you have this family that you're going to be a part of that, that has a future and a promise of inheritance that will never fade away. A promise of land, a promise of a people, a promise of blessing. All of those things are there. I think I mentioned this a while back, but my nephew said uh, some time ago he, um, he was at the Rushing's house and he was like really upset that they had to leave. He was so upset, man. He was fired up. And he, uh, he said, I just wish I could live there. That was his first comment. And then his mom was like, well, I don't think you can just like move in, forget the family. And he's like, well, I just wish I had a big house and everybody lived together, you know? And I'm sure most of us would be like, oh, I don't know about that all the time, be fighting. But in a, as a renewed group of people in the future, as we think about heaven, we will dwell with one another forever. We have this family, this, 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 this sharing together in the Lord that is just astonishing that we will experience forever and ever. We will also have a place to dwell. In Revelation it says, there will be no more disease, no more dying, no more suffering, no more struggle. All those things will pass away. It's, it will be a place of safety and joy and provision and all of those things. Not only that, it will be a place of blessing. You know, all those people that will curse the people of God will be done away with. We will experience a place where it will be complete blessing, free of any fear of anyone coming in and disrupting the joy of the people of God. And so all of that is kind of, it's an amazing thing. But you know, right now in our experience sometimes, we, we see dimly. Like some days I think, I forget that. And I don't think about the future that I have in the Lord. And in the present, it's like sometimes really troublesome. Because I think, golly, I don't know if I can live all the way through this life experiencing all the stuff that goes on. But Paul says we see dimly now and one day we will see fully. And we'll understand this in its fullness. Now, as we move to verse 1, it says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way also, when you were children, you were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. This, this idea is like, the heir is the, the idea of like growing up as a child in a vast estate. I mean like, it just a massive estate. Like maybe a 100,000 acre estate. And you see all of this stuff and there's this reality that, that you're the promised child, but while you're growing up, somebody's watching over you all the time. Ruling over you. In a way that you're, you don't have any freedom to make any decisions. In that period of time even, what I've read is that even though a child might come to age at like 14, they were kind of still under the, the, the trustees until they were like 25. But when they got to that place where they were set free, it, it was, they, they had the freedom to enjoy all those things that had been given to them. Paul says, we, we are now heirs. We're not under the, the bondage of those things anymore. When he says the elementary principles of the world... Uh, sometimes I think about in, in terms of just the natural realm that we live in. If you read about like old, like in the old days, like they would have gods, and sometimes in other parts of our world where they'd have the god of the sun and the god of the sea and the god of the rain and the god of this and the god of that, and they would take all those principles in the world, all of those things, and they would put their trust in the god of the sea. He would let them pass through calmly. Or they would put their trust in the God of the rain so that the crops would grow. And they would have all these gods. 
And they were kind of imprisoned by, well, I might mess up these gods. In the same way, I think we could say, there are gods today, gods of health and fitness and beauty and success and entertainment that we buy into. They're kind of put us in bondage because we say, if I don't have these things, I cannot be fulfilled in this life. And so there's one thing about this passage that points back to the Jewish people under the law covenant. There's another aspect of this that kind of points back to all humans who trust in laws and in the principles of the world to give them fulfillment. And, and he's saying, like, you've passed all those things, you've entered into joy. Even Christians kind of run back to those things. But we who are Christians, we have all the rights and privileges of sons, and we are not in bondage to any of these things in this world. We are set free in Christ. Verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now the question comes here is like, how is this going to take place? How can we enter into this? How is it possible that we could enter into these things? And this is what He lays out to us very clearly. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God, this was not an accident. In God's timing, He sent forth His Son in perfect time, born of a woman. Jesus was eternally God. We read that this morning. He's always been God. But at a point in time, He came to this earth. He dwelt among us. He became man. He was born of a woman. He became man. And He was born under the law. He was born under the law in the way that all humanity is. They're born under this bondage to the law. But all the demands of the law were come, kind of was set over him. But he fulfilled all of those things. He was born in a state of obligation, but he perfectly obeyed the law. Perfectly. Very powerful picture here. And, and he didn't fail to obey it in any way. But notice what happens to redeem those who are under the law. So not only did he perfectly obey it, but he came to purchase us. He, he, he purchased us. It, the idea here is out of the slave market. In, in those days, I don't know if you've watched movies where you see the slave market, but you walk through there and people are dirty and filthy and there's disease and there's such, it's so disgusting. You think you would have to cover your mouth. I remember in the, the movie Amazing Grace where uh, uh, William Wilberforce said, I want you to go in these slave ships. And he took the people there and he began to show them the chains and all, and they were. They were getting sick over it and they covered their mouths and they said, I cannot stand seeing this any longer. So it is like Jesus came down to this earth into the slave market of sin to all these people in bondage, into decay and darkness and depravity and all of this horrific things and, and all these taskmasters being over them and just it was a horrible condition and He came down to purchase us out of the slave market of sin. The most dire and desperate of circumstances, He rescued us out. As Travis said earlier, it, it's, it's, it's hard for us to understand the magnitude of that because sometimes in our visible, like our eyes, if you were to physically look at it, you say, these people aren't in bondage. Look how clean they look. Look how nicely manicured their homes are. Look at all these things. Look how they seem to have it all. But reality is behind all of that, if you were to pull back the curtain, is bondage to sin. And so I think it's important that we understand that He came to redeem us out of the curse of the law or being under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. It's, it, it's like this ancient king who owns 
this amazing kingdom coming down, putting the clothes on of this of this of a slave in the most horrible of conditions, dwelling among them, and then saving them out of it by giving his own self, his own life, and then grabbing them up and saying, "Hey, I want to lead you out." And he leads them out, and as he, he drags them out, he brings them, and they don't even know necessarily maybe how bad the situation is, and then he clothes them with these new clothes, and he places them in this vast kingdom, and he says, you're all my children, I'm bringing you into my family, but you're not just kind of like a slave in my family, I'm adopting you into my family. I, I'm, I'm bringing you in with all the rights and privileges of a, of a physical son. You are a part of my family what does it mean to have God as your father that ever blow you a mind to just think all the wealth and power and love to be lavished on you the security protection provision and wisdom would be at your disposal you're blessed with every spiritual blessing can you imagine that to know that God is your father the Scripture speaks of, of this in, in 1 Peter. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. 1 John 3 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's the reason why the world does not know us, or does not know us, is that it did not know Him. It's hard for the world to understand this, but we have all the rights and the privileges of the King of Kings. Jesus is our brother. We are united to Him in all the blessings that Jesus has. All of this, this, this beautiful uh, thing that we see is the inheritance that's been given to Him is our inheritance by faith. This is the most amazing thing to know Him as our Father. Verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. What did God... Uh, Send to us the Spirit of His Son. We see this here. This is the same thing as saying God the Spirit dwelling in us. Sometimes people talk about the Scripture will say the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God. It, it, they're, they're the same. It's just, it, they're synonymous in this. We see the intimacy of the God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit here. The Trinity kind of presented to us. Now listen to this. Tim Keller says, the Son's purpose was to secure for us the legal status of our sonship. By contrast, the Spirit's purpose is to secure the actual experience of it. This is not like the work of the Son. The work of the Son brings an objective legal condition that is ours whether we feel it or not. But the Spirit, the work of the Spirit is not like that at all. The Spirit brings us a radical, subjective experience. What it, it does is it marks with us like these characteristics. We know the presence of the Spirit working within the people of God. And so, listen to what the Spirit does for us. You ready? He leads us to call out to the Father. This is radical. Uh, the Father of the, the, the Creator of the universe is our Father. He is leading us to understand that and cry out to Him. 
It's just kind of this picture that He loves us, He cares for us, He provides for us, He guides us, He protects us, and the list goes on. He is, the Spirit is driving us to cry out to Him, to understand who He is and to, to run to Him. Spirit's working that in us. Not only that, it's kind of this picture of the call. It's kind of like prayer. Saying the Spirit is driving us to pray and to call out to God. It's not just this kind of... It's kind of a crying out like... Um, you know how some people really form one? I'm not saying there's not some value in that, but you can be really formal in your prayers. This kind of is a picture of not a great formality. It's just crying out, save me, rescue me. I know you care for me. Do, do this work on my behalf. There's something very beautiful about that. But the, another thing that you see is it reveals that God is near to us. That you can cry out to Him. Sometimes when you pray, like you feel, oh, is it going past this ceiling? I mean, is it really... But, but the Spirit is, is working that in to say, cry out to Him, God is near. He is not far off and distant from you. He is very, very close to us. <laughs> this last um, week, I went home for lunch. I don't usually do that. I ran home, and Anna like, had the vacuum cleaner out, which usually that's my duty, by the way. I'll just throw it in there. But she had the vacuum out because I've probably been slouching on it. And she um, uh, had turned it off. And William was just kind of hanging out. Well, then I started eating or whatever, and then she turned it back on, and he was just like horrified. He hates the vacuum cleaner. And so he crawls over there to me, and he starts going, ah, 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 you know, like reaching up to me, you know. And I pick him up, you know, and hold him real tight, and he's like pretty calm. He wraps his arm around me, and I go over and slap that vacuum cleaner like it couldn't do nothing to us, you know. It's like, I'm bad to the bone, son. I can take this vacuum cleaner. But but like, there's something about that that brings great joy to me. He knows he can run to me, like when he's scared, and he can find protection. Something very beautiful about that. As you keep thinking about, it, he says, "Abba, Father." It's a childlike term. This little child crying out to rescue me. I'm afraid. I'm scared. I'm concerned. I'm hungry. I mean, whatever, come rescue me. I'm in need. And I think it's a very beautiful picture of a child assumes that you will accept them and you will love them. I didn't take him and slap him aside and say, son, man up. You know, you can take that vacuum cleaner. You know, it's not that time. He's a little child. And God doesn't do that with you. Man up. He's saying, cry out as a little child comes. You're not that big. You're not that bad. You need Him. And He's intimately close to us. A child understands that they're accepted in love. I thought about one other kind of illustration of this is in the movie The Patriot. Um, in that movie, there's this young little girl who, who really, I think, you know, she has this relationship with her father where she just, she, won't, she loves him, but she, she watches him sometimes, but she won't speak to him. And so at one time, like all the family's kind of been exiled during the Revolutionary War. He goes to see him, and he has to go back to war. And he, he goes down and says, you know, he tells her he loves her and he hugs her and all that stuff. And she's the last one he spoke to. And so finally, he just has to go. And so and he wants her to just say something to him because he's been, she's been talking to other people, and, and she just wouldn't. And so he turns around, gets up on his, uh, mounts his horse, is about to ride off, and she goes, Papa, Papa, don't leave. And, and when she says, like, Papa, I mean, his whole countenance changed. He jumps off the horse, wraps her in his arms. It's like he loves to hear that. Papa, don't leave me. 
And, and it was just like this powerful moment in that film. But I think even for me, I was, this week I was just overwhelmed like I was writing a sermon. I was like in there crying like a baby thinking about the reality that the Father delights in hearing His children cry out to Him because He loves them to delight in Him. He loves them to run to Him. He loves to see you in fear of this present age running to Him. He loves you to think, I can't provide in this situation and run to Him. He loves to see you need Him because you do need Him. It's for your good that you would run to Him. But it's the most powerful thing when your heart wells up with a child thinking they need me and I'm going to rescue them. That's the picture of God towards them. Sometimes I don't think of prayer like that. I don't see that as, maybe I don't think I need that much rescue, or I think that God is like not really into me running to Him like a child running to their father. That's exactly what you see. We're no longer slaves but sons. We are heirs. We're entitled to the whole estate. Our sonship removes all fear of missing fulfillment or losing approval. All of those things are gone because of what we have in Christ. So as we conclude today, i just give you a couple of things to think about. Do you ever discount the privilege of sonship? You know, when we sin, we're failing to believe what God has said about us. So often we sin because we think we're going to miss out on something in this life. Or where it's, you know, We'll also sin because we think we need approval from others when God has pronounced over us the most amazing approval in all of life. We should pray that God would give us by the Spirit a, a, a desire to cherish the relationship with the Father. To, to love that more than anything else. We should pray that God would wait, help us wait for God to fulfill the promises that He's given. And He's all wise. God gives us what He wants us to have for His own purposes. And we are to use it for His glory. And so we should rest in what He promises and what He provides. Because in His timing, He will fulfill all of His promises to us. The New Testament is filled with promises of our inheritance. And sometimes maybe we think, oh, when is that coming? But in faith, we should rest in the fact that God is going to bring that to pass. We must trust Him now. And He will provide all that we need. He loves to bless His people. Let's pray. Father, we just praise You that we experience the most amazing privilege of knowing You. Jesus, our brother, who we are united to, has brought us into the family with all the rights and privileges that He has gained for us. Lord, we know that You, Your heart is overflows with joy as we glorify You by running to You in need. May we be a people that that cherish the moments of, of embracing You as our only hope, of seeing You as the One who satisfies, of trusting You for our future inheritance that so surpasses this present age that it just fades away. In Christ's name.